that Jesus was toward these religious leaders in his entire ministry. And that was because these individuals were leading people astray. They were putting burdens uh, upon them, uh, weights upon them. And Jesus wanted to set people free. He wanted them to know God and to follow after God rightly, uh, not incorrectly, as these religious leaders uh, were leading them to do. I mean, let's face it, as we've seen in these last two chapters, if you call a religious leader, a scholarly, devoted, learned religious leader, a child of Satan... You better be packing, all right? I mean, that, that is not going to go well. I don't care how you phrase it and how gently you try to say that to them. You know, say, well, I just speak the truth in love. There's no, no way they're going to receive that truth uh, that it was a loving manner. You know, you, some of you will know this. You can say mean things to a dog if you use the right tone of voice. Right, me. Come here, you flea bag infested animal. Come on over here. Come, mommy, daddy wants to see you. You know, you sorry excuse for a pet. When I get you, I'm going to put you outside and you're never coming in this house again. Come on over here now. And that dog's like, okay, good. I get a treat. Rub my belly, you know. That, 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 the tone of your voice, the dog's like, I don't know what you're saying, but I'm coming because you sound nice to me. You're not going to be able to do that to religious leaders if you're calling them a child of the devil, doesn't matter what tone of voice or how nice you sound when you say it, that is not going to be uh, a pleasant and positive experience. And you know, I pray as I, I pray for my sermons and, and the preparation process of that, I pray that God will give me thoughts and insights and I often pray that he'll give me deep knowledge and wisdom uh, into his word and the truths that I present as I preach to you each week. And, and it used to bother me that sometimes the truths and the principles that I preach and teach are so blatantly obvious and very simple. Then one day the Lord said that it's because you guys aren't getting those that I have to keep doing the elementary stuff. So if you would start getting this stuff right, we could move to deeper stuff, you know, in our faith. Now, I'm just kidding with you there. But as I looked at this week, I was like, yeah, this is another one of those really obvious sort of things that we go, well, yeah, I know that. I've seen that before. But the truth for this morning, what I want you to see and zero in on a little bit for us to dig into is the fact of this. You will be attacked when you live for Christ. You will be attacked when you live for Christ. You're going, okay, good. I got up, I showered, got all dressed up, came out for that. Thank you, Captain Obvious. All right, I, I knew that. I've read the Bible before. I've heard sermons. I understand that concept. But it's what's happening right here in John chapter 8. Jesus had just embarrassed the religious leaders publicly. He rebuked them, called them children of the devil, built a foolproof case as to why that was the case. Uh, and they were mad, livid furious, enraged, outraged. You think of a word that in, includes some element of anger or rage or fury. That's what they were experiencing. That's what was going on in their spirit and in their mind after this encounter with Jesus. And so you know what they did? They attacked teeth bared, claws out, they came at Jesus. And they knew because they had tried on several occasions to refute Jesus' uh, doctrine, his theology, his teachings, but his authority and his wisdom was so great that they had failed in every attempt. So they're like, well, we're not gonna challenge him on his teaching and what he says because he always winds up, you know, putting it back on us that we're wrong for some way. It's like a husband and wife, you know, guys, how that works out, you know, no matter what you say, it's always your fault. They're like, every time we try this with Jesus, it's always on us. So we're not gonna do that. And so when they can't refute your doctrine, they'll attack your character. When they can't refute your doctrine, they will attack 
your character, which is what they did in verse 48, trying to antagonize Jesus uh, and call him and get him to do something that they could say, see, see, see what he did when he got mad, see what happened. They were trying to call something out that they would be able to point to as an accusation against Jesus. So in verse 48, they said, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? What do you mean, are you not right? No, you're not right, you knuckleheads. I mean, just, just think about what reaction that's gonna bring out in doing that. They're trying to hear, they're, they're trying to slander Jesus' parents for starters, you know, that, uh, that, he, that he was a Samaritan, uh, that he has a demon, that there was an accusation to say, well, you claim to be from God, but weren't you conceived out of wedlock? Because they probably heard the story that uh, Mary was pregnant with Jesus before they were married. And so they believed the common understanding of how that takes place instead of the fact that Mary and Joseph and Jesus had told them how Jesus was conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's this slanderous accusation against his parents uh, and his origin. And, and then this, that, it, that we come from a demon. But beyond that, by calling Jesus a Samaritan, I mean, that was a racial slur. It was derogatory. It was as a negative a racial slur as you could say in that day and time. Because you see, the Jews thought of the Samaritans as half-breeds and they, they treated them and they talked of them in that way because the Samaritan people uh, were Jews who had intermarried and intermingled with people of other nations and other races and other religions. So devout, uh, righteous Jews said, no, you guys are all mixed in with these other people. Uh, we don't like you. And more than we don't like you, we hate you. That there was a hatred that our minds can't even begin to grasp from the Jews toward the Samaritans. It was so bad that as part of their worship, Jews would go to the temple to a place of worship where they would gather to seek God's will, to learn, uh, to, to learn from him, to uh, see his teachings and to talk about how to live their lives in obedience to God. They would come to this place of worship and they would pray in the temple and they would thank God that they were not a Samaritan and they would pray that the Samaritans wouldn't even go to heaven. That was how, how deep their animosity and their hatred was to this group of people. And so for them to call Jesus a Samaritan was the most derogatory thing they could think to say in this moment. And so we see this taking place and we see uh, them you know, confronting Jesus, trying to antagonize him in this way. And as you see this attack upon Jesus, I want you to remember two things. The first is a charge we see from the apostle Paul to his young protege in ministry, Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor. Paul was a mentor, was teaching him. In, verse, in chapter four of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, Paul says to him, keep a close watch on yourself. Keep a close watch on yourself, your actions, your attitude, your example. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, Paul says. Well, we look at that and we go, well, what's the teaching? What's the teaching that Timothy has? Well, Paul uh, gives him other instruction in this letter, which kind of helps clarify this a little bit. He says in chapter one, verse three, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So there were people who were teaching the wrong things. And Paul said to young Timothy, you know who those people are and you are not to let them teach because they're teaching different and wrong doctrine. Part of your charge as the pastor there is to protect the other sheep from these false teachers, Timothy, because they're teaching the wrong thing. 
in verse 9. He says, The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and note this, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So Paul gives a pretty exhaustive list of things there, but he says, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. You are not to, to allow and not to, to give ear to these wrong teachings. In chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. So Timothy's received the good doctrine. He's teaching the good doctrine. But that also implies and lets us know that there is bad doctrine, wrong doctrine. And it's not just doctrine that Timothy is to know and is to teach. But he says the good doctrine that you have followed. It's to be obeyed. It's to be put into practice. Because you see our doctrine should lead to godliness. And so we look at our lives and say, is there godliness being displayed in my life? If there's not godliness being displayed in my life, then let's come back and let's look and start with and say, is our doctrine right? Or is it wrong? Because it's going to impact the fruit that's being born in our lives. And in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, Paul says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness... He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So there again is that doctrine that leads to godliness, that that should be displayed and evidenced in our lives. So Paul charges Timothy, keep a close guard on yourself. But he also says, and watch and guard your doctrine. Guard your doctrine. Because if our doctrine is right, what we believe, if it's not right, everything else that we try to build into our lives spiritually is going to be wrong as well. For example, I mean, if you think that two plus two is six, you're not going to pass math classes, all right? Your foundation is wrong. You're not going to be a good accountant or or good at anything that requires math and numbers because your foundation, your understanding is off from the beginning. So we must watch and we must closely guard the doctrines that we believe and follow, live out in our lives. And so we say, well, how do we know and how do we find right doctrine? How do we know if it's true? Well, look at verse 51. Verse 51, Jesus is basically reiterating what he said in verse 31 earlier in the chapter. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, I've said on a number of occasions that when Jesus says truly, truly, he is about to say something that is uh, true, uh, it's irrefutable, and it's very important for his listeners then, but also us consequently because we have these words recorded for us. It's very important for them to know this, to understand it, and to obey. So he says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, in verse 31, he talked about abiding in his word and that when we abide in his word, we are truly his disciples. And I talked a couple of weeks ago about the importance of abiding in God's word, that we abide in his word, that we remain in it, that we study it and that we obey it. So he said, abide in it and you're truly my disciples in verse 31. Now in verse 51, uh, he says, if we uh, know his word and we do his word, we will live forever. We will never taste death. 
And so the connection is very simple. We study God's word and the Holy Spirit whom God has given us will guide and will teach us and show us the right doctrine to believe and to practice. The Holy Spirit will guide us as we study and get into God's word. And you know, there are doctrines that we as believers need to go to the mat for, that we take a strong stand in our church, in our Sunday school classes, and in our society and culture as a whole. Even within our denomination, there are non-negotiable doctrines uh, that, that we don't budge on because of what Scripture teaches and how central they are to all that God teaches us in His Word. Uh, you know, we talk about uh, the, the inerrancy of Scripture, that God's Word is perfect and true. That's one we're, we're not going to have any discussion on. We talk about the deity of Christ. Talk about Jesus being the only way to heaven. If, uh, if someone teaches things contrary to those, we're going to have problems because of what Scripture teaches and how clear the Bible makes out those stances to be. Now, someone wants to talk about, you know, church polity or predestination versus free will, talk about end times view and how Jesus is going to return and win and all that, then I'll afford them the opportunity to be wrong. You get that? <laughs> yeah, you got that. As long as that opinion or that view can be backed up from Scripture, all right, you say, well, here's what I think about it. Well, where's the Bible say that? Well, the Bible doesn't say it. I just think that. Okay, that's a whole nother, you know, separate thing there. But there are issues. There are things within scripture where you can be within the bounds of biblical interpretation and still shake out in different places on some issues. Beth Moore kind of uses an analogy that, I, that I've taken and kind of expanded a little bit upon. She talks about that some issues are spine issues in the body of Christ, or I kind of liken that to, to the brain or the heart. They are central to who we are. I mean, you're spine you know not working right you, you don't have a brain never mind as I look at Al over there and see him doing thumbs you know don't have a brain uh, if our heart you know doesn't work and function properly I mean th- these are you're not going to function if those things aren't healthy and working right correct so those are spine issues those are doctrines that yes these are core these are central there is no wavering on them because of how they impact everything else but she says there are other issues. She calls them rib issues, or I kind of think about the, the appendix or the tonsils. Any of you ever had your appendix removed? I see a couple of hands here. What about your tonsils? Any of you had tonsillectomy? How are you all still functioning? How are you living? You've you got organs missing. You have parts of your body that are gone. Well, those are things that, that we are able to, to get by without them, and we function okay as we go through life. Now, hear me here. Please hear me before you, you run out and start sending emails and, and, and notes this week. I'm not saying that there are some doctrines we take or leave and go, eh, we don't need to worry about that doctrine. I'm not saying that we, you know, pick and choose and, and cut some doctrines out. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that there are doctrines that are non-negotiables and there are others that there will be variants of biblical opinions among godly people. Godly people will disagree on some things in scripture. Now, it's important for us to understand even in that though, that not every opinion is equal, nor is every opinion right. Just because somebody says, well, this is my view on it, doesn't mean that they're gonna be right and somebody else is gonna be right on it. You see, our culture teaches us this idea of what's right for you is right for you, right for me is right for me, wrong for you is wrong for you, wrong for me is wrong for me. We can all have different ideas. We can all still be right and get along. Well, you know what? That's ridiculous. You can't all be right. We can't all be right having varying opinions. It's just, it's not gonna work and function in life that way. Let's say you wanna take a road trip to New York City. Let's see, let's take a road trip to New York City. I say, let's go jump on I-95 and drive to New York City. 
you say, no, let's go get on I-64 and go to New York City. You're not going to make it. Because I-64 doesn't go to New York City. So you say, well, well that's, I feel strongly that we should get on I-64 to go to New York City. Well, feel all you want to. You're not going to make it. Okay, so not every idea and opinion is right and valid and true. And as we think about biblical doctrines, godly people can have differing views in times for one of those. You know, is Jesus going to come back uh, before the thousand year reign, after the thousand year reign? Is there not going to be a thousand year reign? How's all that going to shake out? The judgments and the, the fly by the premillennial view, the amillennial, the postmillennial. There's a whole lot of discussion. When you look at scripture, you go, man, I can see Bible verses and how all of it would paint out in this picture. But guess what? Jesus is only going to come back one way. It's only going to happen one way. Now, I don't think in heaven we're going to be going, no, 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 I got it right. You know, I, I don't think that that's how that's going to shake down. We're going to find out one day what God meant when he gave us certain portions of scripture. But here's the thing. When God gave us scripture, he meant one thing. He meant one thing. Now, we may have varying opinions of that and can support two or three different ways of that. But he meant one thing because if God meant multiple things and they're all right, that would make God schizophrenic. Yeah, I meant this, and I meant this, and I meant this. You're all right. Yeah, you all got it right. No, it's not. God meant one thing. We give our best to do due diligence and study to find out what God meant and what God says to us. All right, we need to understand this about doctrines because it's very important how we live our lives according to the doctrines that the Bible teaches. And I want to be clear, there are heretical denominations in our culture and in our world today. And there are churches and there are pastors and there are television preachers and evangelists and megachurch pastors who are not being led of the Holy Spirit of God to faithfully and, teach and, faithfully and truthfully teach the non-negotiable doctrines of Scripture. And we need to avoid those individuals. Don't even give yourself the opportunity to have your thought polluted by the trash that they're teaching. Paul says, guard yourself and the teaching. What does it mean to guard? It means to stand and to not let certain things in. That's what a guard does. And if a guard let things in that were going to harm the people he was protecting, he gave his life. He died for failing in his job to let harmful things and harmful people in. We must guard and protect ourselves and our doctrines. And here's one way that you can know that you're on the right track doctrinally and theologically. You will be attacked when you live your life for Christ. It will happen. Jesus said that it will happen. When you're faithfully and truly following right doctrine, you will come under attack from the enemy. Not people enemies, but our spiritual enemy, Satan, who oftentimes uses people as his emissaries to launch the attack. What happened to Jesus will happen to us. Jesus said as much. He said, if they persecuted me, what? They will persecute you. It will happen. And when they can't refute your doctrine, they'll attack your character. But when your doctrine is right, your character will shine through. Even when you're under attack, from the enemy. 
You know, I said they were trying to antagonize Jesus a little bit, you know, get him riled up in the flesh and maybe he would do something that they could, you know, say, look what he did, you know, that happened here. Uh, Al out in the four-year-old ago, he, he heard a part of this last hour. He said, yeah, you remember that story with Elijah when these boys came out and they called him, you know, old baldy and stuff. Elijah called down curses, had bears come out of the woods and eat them. I'm like, yeah, I remember that story. That, that's probably kind of how I would maybe more operate. These guys, you know, getting up in, in Jesus' face like this and stuff. If I'm the son of God in the flesh and these guys come to me like this, that encounter may have ended with piles of smoldering ashes right there on the ground, you know, called down some fire from heaven and boom, this is over boys. No more of this back and forth and you guys being mean and nasty and stuff, but Jesus keeps his cool. And this is this Christ-like character. When your doctrine is right, then your character will flow out of that doctrine. Jesus says to them in verse 49, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Now that's kind of an ominous warning. Jesus says, I'm honoring my father. You're dishonoring me with these things and these accusations that you're saying to me. You say, I have a demon. That's not gonna sit too well with my heavenly father who is gonna be the judge one day. I mean, you think about it as a husband, your wife has a bad day or feels like she's been treated unfairly and stuff. I mean, there's a, there's a reaction and a reflex in us to wanna protect and wade into that. Or when our kids, you know, when they're having difficulties and they struggle and feel like they've been treated unfairly, well, we've gotta be that protector and we come to their aid to say, that's not right what you're doing here and I'm gonna come. I wanna be the defender of this cause because this is ungodly and unholy what's taking place. Jesus says, you dishonor my father with these things that you say. It's a very ominous warning as to what they're doing. He continues on. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. In summation, that very simply says on Jesus' part, I'm gonna obey my father. And if he glorifies me, then that's, that's great. But I'm still gonna obey my father even if he doesn't glorify me. And you know what, in this situation, here's how this is gonna work out. I'm gonna let God be the judge between you and me. I'm gonna let him determine whose actions, whose teachings, whose behaviors are right. He is the judge and he will determine between you and between me. So I'm gonna do what God's called me to do and I'm gonna let him sort that out in the end as he judges right and wrong on my part and your part. Sounds a whole lot like, I, I love the fact that David is called a man after God's own heart. You remember David back when he's running from Saul, king of Israel, back in the Old Testament, there was an encounter where uh, David had the opportunity to kill Saul, to take his life, kind of avenge him. And, and many of his men said, you should have done that. You should have taken matters into your own hands. And, and David said, no, no, I'm not gonna do that. So he called out to Saul, lets him know that he had the opportunity to kill him. And David says from the mountainside, you know, off yelling at Saul, he said, I'm gonna let God decide between the two of us who's right and who's wrong in this matter. But I wanted you to know, I had the opportunity to kill you, but I didn't. I'm gonna leave the judgment up to God. It's a great attitude for God's people to have. We're gonna do what God has called us to do and we're gonna leave the judgments and the decisions of right and wrong between us and others who may oppose him up to him. So if you wanna display a Christ-like character as we're talking about that here now, do what the religious leaders refuse to do and admit when you're wrong, admit when you're wrong. So they hear this, they've been rebuked over and over again. And they say in verse 52, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Their point was Abraham was godly and he died. The prophets were godly and they died. Now you say, if people come and believe in your word, then they're not gonna die. You, who, who do you think you are? You think you're greater than Abraham, greater than the prophets? 
And I wish one of the disciples or somebody that's kind of there in the crowd watching all of this would have raised their hand and said, yeah, he is. That's what he's been telling you all of this time. He says he's the Messiah, the chosen one, God's son come from him. And his life has proved that. The, the, the miracles, the signs, the wonders, all, we've seen this. We believe that, that he is who he says he is. And now you guys are still asking, who do you think you are? You know, self-deception is the worst kind of deception, isn't it? Self-deception is the worst kind of deception because until you're willing to admit that you're wrong, until you're willing to admit that you have a need, that you can't do something on yourself, you're going to refuse to go and get the help that you really do need. You deceive yourself and you live in this world of denial thinking, I'm okay, I'm fine. Several years ago, I, I woke up uh, one winter morning with the fever, the, the achy body, the chills, the cough, all this kind of stuff. I was like, oh, great, okay, great. It's my annual, you know, uh, winter cold that came on, flu, whatever that kind of thing is that you get. And it always happens to me on the weekends. You know, I, I preach on Sundays. And so generally, if I start feeling bad, it's going to be Friday and a Saturday. I'm like, why is that always happen? Why can't it be Monday when I got a few days to heal? So, but I woke up feeling bad. Uh, Shelly's like, you need to go to the doctor. I'm like, oh, I'll be fine. And I started, you know, the NyQuil and the Tylenol and all the over-the-counter stuff I could. I mean, nothing, nothing seemed to impact it. Wasn't able to preach the next day. Basically, I wound up putting off four days going to the doctor. I was like, oh, it'd be fine. The fever will break. I'll be okay, honey. I'm tough. Just put me in a room, turn the light off, send some chicken noodle soup under the door. I'll be okay. You know, that typical male thing. I'm going to be fine. I'm going to tough this out. Well, when I finally went to the doctor after four days, discovered I had pneumonia. Okay, this wasn't going to go away on its own. So I start the treatment, but because I'd waited so long, it took like another five days for it to kick in. I missed another Sunday. And then even as I got back into the routine, I was only doing like half day and three quarter days because pneumonia is serious stuff. I didn't realize uh, what, a, what a terrible thing it is to have that. And so my loving, gentle wife was like, well, if you'd listen to me, you may have gotten back in. She's very kind and very gracious to not go, I told you so, you hard-headed uh, you know, knucklehead. So that's, you know, she's very kind and gracious in that. But the thing is, until we face the reality of where we are and what's going on, until we admit what we need and what we can't do on our own, I wasn't gonna heal myself with this over-the-counter stuff and pneumonia. Until we admit those things, we're not gonna go and seek the help that we truly need until we admit our sin and realize that we're not able to obey God on our own. We're not able to, to have righteousness in and of ourselves. We can't be made right before God through our actions, our words and our deeds. Until we admit that and come to Jesus Christ, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. We can't become a child of God until we admit that need and receive it from him. And that's what Jesus has been calling these religious leaders to, but they refuse to acknowledge, they refuse to see their need and they refuse to come to him. And let me tell you this, don't ever fool yourself by thinking that you'll never fall that far, that you'll never have a heart that's that, that hard or do something that's quote unquote that bad. I don't, I don't know, I, I, I wish I could find a way to help you grasp the seriousness of sin and this example that we see in the hard hearts of these religious leaders. These men put a bounty on Jesus' head. They were looking and willing to pay money for someone to kill him. And what had he done? Oh, he'd healed the blind, made the deaf hear, the lame walk, cured lepers, raised people from the dead, did miracles to feed people. Yeah, those, those heinous things that Jesus was doing. 
But their envy and their hatred and their rage was so great because he wouldn't do things they thought he should do and he didn't act like they thought he should act. So they had him executed, murdered, assassinated. I mean, do you grasp that these are the religious leaders? You know, Bob, if you go out this week and you, you did a murder for hire, it's going to be in the news. People are going to say, man, you, you know what this guy did? He, he had someone, he hired someone to go and kill someone else. If I go out and have a murder for hire this week and get caught in that, Nancy Grace will talk about me like I'm a dog for months on end, won't she? Can you believe what this pastor in Colonial Heights, Virginia did? This pastor, can you believe what this guy, well, I mean, someone still died as a result of our actions, but the role of a pastor, that's the religious leaders. They hired and looked for someone to kill Jesus. Never underestimate the depths of human depravity and sin and how far They will take you away from God. Admit your sin, turn from it and give yourself to God so he can help you overcome it. And if you want to display a Christ-like character, glorify God, bring glory to God. And that's what Jesus kept bringing the religious leaders back to. Look, this isn't about me. Jesus like, look, I'm here to do my father's work. I want to glorify God. It's not about my glory. It's about glory for my father in heaven. And he says that in verse 54. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Now, the religious leaders, that was their goal was self-glory. Jesus talked about how they prayed in public, they gave in public, they, did, they wore their clothes and they spoke these verses, they fasted, they did all these things to let people know how spiritual they were so they would be built up and have the approval of men. Jesus said, don't seek the, the approval of men, seek the approval of God. And he says, if I glorify myself, which I'm not doing, I would be nothing. Now, think about conversely what that says to them. You are seeking to glorify yourself, The glory you receive means nothing. So Jesus says, if I glorify myself, it's nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. He doesn't let up. He is relentless on these guys. And you know the comparison he's drawing here between him and them is what is seen in their lives. He's not saying it's not about what I teach. He's kind of saying to the religious leaders, don't don't tell me who you are and what you believe and how devoted you are. Show me. It's evidenced in your actions. He's saying to the religious leaders, look, compare our lives, my life to your life. God's going to judge one day. Who do you think God will say was right? And who do you think God will say was wrong based upon our lives, our actions? That's what he's saying to them. I know God. You can see it in what I do. You don't know God. I see it in what you do and don't do. Uh, He says at the end of this verse here in verse 55, but I do know him. And this is the evidence. I do know him. How do you know I know him? Because Jesus says here, and I keep his word. It's not about what I say, it's about what you see in my life. You've seen this evidenced in my life, he says to the religious leaders. I keep his word. I'm doing what my father has called me to do. And he says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. 
You know, doesn't it feel good when, when somebody recognizes and acknowledges, gives you a you know, pat on the back, a word of encouragement, an attaboy you know, for something that you've done? I hope and pray that you all have had that experience in your life, that someone has just encouraged and, and, and uplifted you. If not, one challenge, one point for you this week is to be, a, be somebody who, you have your antenna up this week for opportunities to build up and to encourage other people. The Bible tells us we should do that. Our words should build up. We should encourage and affirm other people. So I want to encourage you to do that this week. But it means a great deal, does it not, when people, you know, express a word of encouragement or affirmation to us. I thought back on my life to times that, that I've received some affirmation, encouragement, and I get, you know, notes and emails and different things all the time. But there are a few times in my mind as I was reflecting on this that they just really stand out. I mean, today I can still tell you the context and the situation and what went on. And two things I think make it more special when there's an affirmation or a word of encouragement that comes our way. First of all, is when it's someone that you respect, that you admire, that you look up to, uh, who, who speaks a word of encouragement. That means a whole lot to them. The second, I think, in my journey, has been when those times came, even though I was just doing what I was supposed to do, it was just expected, it was my responsibility, it was my task, and then someone just said, hey, we appreciate that, we see you, and I'm like, well, I thank you, that means a whole lot to me, because I'm just doing what I'm supposed to be doing. When I was in high school, I had one of those situations that happened. I, I worked uh, when it, for my high school job in those teen years in the shoe department at Kmart, so if you came in Kmart at the right time, you could hear me say, ladies and gentlemen, there's a blue light special in the shoe department today. I, I, was, I was a shoe clerk in, the, in that department. And part of what I had to do was make these PA announcements about blue light specials. And after a few months, I was at wit's end with, come on over to the shoe department today. Ladies flats are on sale for $7.99 in a wide array of colors. I was like, oh, this is killing me. And so I took it upon myself, didn't get any approval, but it was, it was winter time. I remember what was going on because of the, the, the note that I wrote. And I, I did a creative sales pitch uh, for some shoes in our department. It was winter basketball season. We had men's high tops on sale. So I wrote this little creative announcement about guys getting off the couch and putting on their new kicks and getting out on the floor and, floor and wowing people with their mad basketball skills and how wives and their kids could put on their new shoes and they could come and cheer on their husbands as he was an all-star in this kind of deal. And uh, so I, you know, I did that announcement. And of course, I worked in how, how low the prices were on these shoes that were on sale. Well, several months later, my, my boss was there. She said, hey, come back here. I got something for you. And I was like, okay, I hope it's not the pink slip, you know, walking back here. And I came in and she had a certificate from our regional manager and some K dollars. That was kind of the in-house money, you know, that you would use kind of stuff that was there. And she had photocopied, unbeknownst to me, my, uh, my announcement that I had made and sent it on to my regional manager who said, well, we really appreciate that guy, you know, going above and beyond and thinking creatively and doing something to get people's attention. And I was like, really? You guys, that was just like for me to keep my sanity because I was so bored with the way that we were doing announcements before. I didn't feel like I was doing anything above and beyond. I was just trying to, you know, make the time much less miserable, you know, as I was there straightening shoes and, and retagging them all day long. But it was, it was a neat experience to have that take place. And, and here's the thing is we're talking about spiritually, Jesus glorifying God. He says, I'm here to glorify God. That's what I came to serve him, to do his will. You know, and, and did God glorify Christ? Yes, he did. But what was Jesus' goal? It wasn't to receive that glory. It was to give his glory to his father. That was his goal. That was his aim. And that should be our aim as well. You see, we're supposed to, to want to please our heavenly father. First of all, because of all that we've received from him. And just take inventory. Think about what you have received from God. I mean, he has blessed you and given you so much, particularly if you've received salvation. So we should serve him and never expect or want or desire anything in return because of how much we have already received from him. That's how we should serve God because of what we've received. And that's what we're supposed to do. 
But God is so good to us in that he continues to pour out special blessings on us as we faithfully honor and serve him. I mean, isn't that awesome? You've already been given so much. You don't deserve anything else. But when you, when you obey God and when you honor him and you live your life for him, he continues to pour out more and more blessings. And so Jesus said he, that Abraham saw his day and he was glad. And so you look at that and go, what he saw his day. Did Abraham have a dream? Did he have a vision? No, how this worked out was Abraham lived his life and his faith journey. He saw things that would come true in the future through Jesus Christ. Now think about the parallels here. First of all, God promised Abraham that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Abraham said, that's great. I love that promise. I look forward to that day. There's only one problem to that promise, Lord. I don't have any children descendants mean they come after me and I don't have even the first one to start after me. And God's like, oh, details, details. We'll take care of that. Abraham waited 25 years, 25 years for that promise to come true. That's a long time to wait. Is it not for a promise to come true? Well, think about how long the Jews waited for their Messiah, the deliverer, the anointed one to come. So Abraham saw waiting but he saw that God would be faithful in fulfilling his promises. Abraham finally received his son and God said, I want you to take your son. I want you to sacrifice him to me. So Abraham took his son. He bound him. He put him on the altar. He took the knife in his hand. He raised the knife over his head to kill the son that he waited 25 years to have come to him. And Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Abraham's faith was so great that he believed that even if he killed his son on that altar, that God had the power to raise him from the dead. His faith was that great. God, I know that you've got the power to raise him from the dead so that your promise can be fulfilled. So as he held the knife over his head, God said, stop. No, Abraham, I don't want you to do that. I know that you love me above all else. I'm not asking you to kill your son. But he had the faith that God could resurrect him from the dead. Well, thousands of years later, God did kill and allow his son to be killed as a sacrifice. Jesus was sacrificed for our sins. He died to pay the price for our sins. And Abraham believed what? Even if he should die, God has the power to resurrect my son Isaac. Well, three days later, Jesus was indeed resurrected from the dead. This promise that Abraham believed held true thousands of years later when Jesus came and lived his life. So Abraham saw what was going to take place in his life. God's faithfulness, his promise, his provision. God's going to do this. I believe in God no matter what. And then Abraham died believing in the future promise that did come true. And so the religious leaders hear this and they scoff. I mean, I can see them just kind of snickering and elbowing each other going, did you hear what the guy just said? And they say to Jesus, you are not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. Now they're not saying, Jesus, we think you're 50. They're saying you can't be more than 50 years old. Jesus wasn't near 50, but they're just saying, we know that you're less than 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. And Jesus left no room for misinterpretation by saying to them, truly, truly, for the 13th time in his gospel, truly, truly, these strong words, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. That was the name given to Moses by God in the wilderness. Moses, when they say, who sent me, my personal name, you tell them, I am sent you. They will believe and they will follow God's personal name. Jesus said, yes, I have seen Abraham because I am God. That's what he told him. No mincing words, no beating around the bush. Yes, I am. Jesus knew who he was. And I want to remind you this morning that if you want to have and live out a Christ-like character, you need to remember whose 
you are as well. Through Jesus Christ, you are a child of God, a child of the king, a spiritual descendant of Abraham and his faith. Verse 59 says, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. God protected him in that moment. And God will watch over you as well. Nothing will happen to you outside of the sovereign will of God. So as we come to our time of invitation this morning, I want to ask, what is it going to look like? What is it going to take in your life for you to be fully surrendered to Jesus Christ? Are you giving yourself fully to the study and to the obedience to his word? Are you living out your faith with a, with a Christ-like character? Are there areas of sin in your life that God has maybe convicted you about that you need to confess, turn away from, be forgiven, and ask God to give you the strength to overcome and, and not struggle and battle those sin areas any longer? I don't know what it may look like for you today, but I want to encourage and I want to invite you today to obey God and to glorify Him so that people will see your Christ-like character. And when they see that character, know that, that you'll be attacked but you can be prepared by guarding your doctrine, guarding your character. And when you guard your doctrine, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will help you display a Christ-like character that will draw others to Christ. But today and every day, it begins with us surrendering ourselves to him. Let's pray.